0: With you this morning. Let's go to Genesis chapter 13. and we're going to take a look at Abraham in Scripture. One of my favorite things in all the world is to hear people's testimonies, the, the story of how God has guided them and, and led them. And what I've learned about those testimonies is that it is not always an upward trajectory, because we are frail and we are sinful. Sometimes we have some uh, off-the-path detours and some stumbles and some falls. But the amazing grace of God is able to overcome and restore and to put us back on the upward track again. And as I look at this text of Scripture, I am reminded of the testimony of Abraham. I'm pretty sure God likes testimonies too because he's filled the Bible with them. We have personal stories, not just platitudes, not just theological dissertations, and not just concepts being unfolded and unraveled, but we have real-life people who walked with God. And some of them give us a shining example like Enoch that we saw last week who walked with God and pleased God, and God took him home because of it. And then we come to a character like Abraham, which seems to be a little more complex We know that he is revered and that the end of his story is one of great faith and faithfulness. But when we read through the narrative, we find that there were some detours for Abraham. And that it didn't disqualify him from the call that God had for him. But that God was able to take those and even build him uh, stronger in his faith for Christ and for the Lord and in his journey with God. Let's read the first four verses of chapter 13 this morning, Genesis 13, verses 1 through 4. It says, And Abram went up out of Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot went with him into the south. And Abram was very rich in cattle and silver and in gold. And he went on his journeys from the south even to Bethel unto the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Hai." Unto the place of the altar which he had made there at the first, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Let's pray and invite God to be our teacher this morning. Oh Lord, we confess our inability to even pay attention to you for a small amount of time. It's so embarrassing for us to admit that, but we know it's true in our hearts. And so, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would capture our attention this morning, that you would arrest our attention, that you would hold it as long as we are focusing on you and in your word, and that you might teach us through the life of Abraham how that we can draw near to you and how we can draw near to you again when we've been drawn away. Lord, I pray that you would make a major impact with this text of Scripture today and that people might draw near to you because of the testimony of Abraham Lord, I pray and ask that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit, that you would anoint me afresh and anew, that you would help me to preach your word with power and with clarity and conviction. And I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would have his way in our hearts and our lives today. And I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Abraham began drawing near to God in Genesis chapter 12. We we meet him. His name is just mentioned at the end of chapter 11. Chapter 12, uh, the the narrative of Scripture focuses in on Abraham. Uh, We've got Genesis 1 through 11 covers 2,000 years of human history from Adam and Eve to the expansion to the scattering of the languages uh, at the Tower of Babel. And then we hone back in on one person, That God has called named Abram in Genesis chapter 12 and we get to sit in and hear the covenant that God is making with Abram. God wants to take Abram, this man, and his wife Sarah and he wants to make out of them a great nation, a nation through which he will reveal himself to the world, a nation through which he will uh, unfold his truth through the world, a a nation through which he will manifest his presence in the world and it all begins with this. This one man, Abraham, and his journey of faith. We find that Abraham steps out by faith and answers God's call in the first five verses of Genesis chapter 12. He's not from Canaan, he's from Mesopotamia, and he's traveled up to Haran. And from there, God has called him down into this land that he's never been before. He is a stranger, he's a pilgrim, he's a sojourner. He he has uh, quite a bit of of, uh, cattle and flock, and it's not an easy thing for him to move. Uh, and so he has this strong faith that he is following God, and he makes some major moves towards God, and, and God blesses him. As as Abraham draws closer to God, uh, God draws closer to him. Notice, if you would, back in chapter 12, verses 6 and 7, after the initial covenant is made, and Abram has uh, started to come into the land of Canaan, it It says in verse 6 that Abram passed through the land unto the place of Shechem, unto the plain of Morah, and the Canaanite was there in the land. Uh, Verse 7, the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land, and there builded he an altar unto the Lord, Who appeared unto him. So get the picture. God calls Abram in Genesis 12 1. And when Abram responds in faith and begins taking steps of faith toward God, then God appears to him again when he gets into Shechem in Canaan land. And there Abram builds an altar. Uh, It is the principle that we unfolded and uncovered from James 4, 8, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. That's exactly what we see happening here in Abraham's life. And it is a beautiful, beautiful display of how God wants fellowship with you and I. Abraham remained close to God for a good while and even built another altar in pursuit of nearness to God. And so he uh, builds an altar there. Verse 8, it goes on and says, He removed from thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west and Hai on the east. And there he builded an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord, and so by my count, that's the second altar that he has built. What is the significance of the altar? Well, in Old Testament times, the altar was this uh, this, this small table uh, built out of stones that was for the Lord, and what it becomes is God's property on earth. And whatever you put on that becomes God's property. And so they would sacrifice an animal and they would place it on the altar because that's not an animal that they're going to use for breeding and it's not an animal that they're going to use for eating. It is an animal that they're going to use as a sacrifice to God. They're going to give that to God as an expression of their worship, their dedication to Him. And so Abram is living close to God and he is drawing nearer to God as he has these altar encounters. But the challenges of life make it difficult to stay near to God. Isn't that the truth? And uh, all of us have experienced that, uh, the zenith, the highlight of getting saved and drawing near to God and everything is fresh and new and we're enjoying uh, God's uh, relationship with us. Uh, But then it seems like as we go on and keep trying to follow God, life can get difficult and it's not as easy to keep following God. That's what Abraham experiences. He's left Mesopotamia, Haran. He's come to Canaan. He's building altars. He's enjoying this favor and this closeness with God. But notice it says in verses 9 and 10, Abram journeyed going on still toward the south. And there was a famine in the land. And Abram went down into Egypt to sojourn there. For the land uh, famine was grievous in the land. So in this land of promise, this promised land that Abram has went to, all of a sudden life is not as easy and abundant as it was. In fact, it becomes difficult. There's a famine in the land. There's a drought. There's a shortage in the land. And and Abram, who has been living close to God and trying to live close to God now, is wrestling because he realizes if I stay in this place, life is going to get difficult and there's no promise. There's no guarantee that it's going to get better. But I know that if I go on south, if I go on down to Egypt, that maybe I can get out of the famine area and I can continue to maintain my quality of life and and have a more hopeful future. Soon, Abraham Abraham finds himself at a place distant from God, far from where God wants him to be. You see... When it says that he sojourned in the land of Egypt, you have to remember God never sanctioned Abraham to go to the land of Egypt. He never called Abraham to go to the land of Egypt. He never gave him the green light and the okay to leave the land. Even though there's a famine in the land and there's difficulty in the land, God is not the one who said, Pack up and move on. Abraham was supposed to stay in the land of Canaan. Furthermore, We find that when Abram uh, goes down into Egypt, he feels that he has to pretend to be something that he's not to fit in with those people in that distant land. In verses 11 through 13, as Abram is going down, he says to Sarah, Sarah, you're a beautiful woman. And if we go into this place and I tell them that you're my wife, there's a chance that they'll kill me and take you. So how about you just say you're my sister? We'll pretend not to be married. now I don't know we don't have time to figure out how this all went but I I don't know too many wives who'd be cool with that (laughs) hey honey how about you just pretend not to be my wife for a little while oh I'll do more than pretend (laughs) We, we can make it a reality we can we can make that permanent But don't miss what's happening here. When he moves to this distant place and he's getting away from God, all of a sudden he's pretending to be something that he's not. He's changing his identity a little bit. You see, because Abram's identity is wrapped up in his marriage to Sarah, the promise was to Abraham and to Sarah that there would be a promise seed. And now all of a sudden he's pretending to be something that he's not. There, there's no mention of Abram building an altar in this place. In that time that he spends in Egypt, there's no altar building that goes on there. Why? Well, it's hard to build an altar to God when you know you're living far from him. It's hard to, to pretend like you're, you're in good fellowship with God when you know in your heart there is distance there and you're not where you're supposed to be. It reminds us that he's no longer as close to God as he once was because there's no altar building that happens here. Worst of all, his distance has created a situation which he cannot fulfill God's purpose for his life. You see, when he goes down into Egypt and they pretend to be something that they're not, Pharaoh does see Abraham's wife, sister, and he thinks that she's beautiful and he wants her to be part of his harem and so he calls On Sarah to come to his palace, Abraham has already made the lie. Now he's got to sleep in the bed that he made. And Sarah has been taken out of his tent and she is at Pharaoh's house. So let me ask you, how can Abraham fulfill God's purpose for his life if his purpose is to have a child with Sarah and Sarah's not sleeping with him? She's sleeping in the Pharaoh's palace. Now, by God's goodness and grace, God protected and preserved their marriage union, and it was not violated. But I'm telling you, Abraham finds himself in a place where it's impossible for him to fulfill God's purpose for his life. And you and I need to realize that when we get away from God, we pretend to be something that we're not, and we put ourselves into a situation where we can't fulfill God's purpose for our life So how did Abraham recover from his backsliding? How how did he draw near to God again? I mean, he was going so good for a while, and then he has this detour, this sidetrack. Well, first I'd say let's not forget to acknowledge the grace of God. Even though Abraham is distant from God, God still loves him and wants him near. Isn't that the grace of God? Isn't that the amazing grace of God? That even when you and I have squandered what God has given to us, even when you and I have grown, grown distant from God, God doesn't stop loving us. God doesn't stop wanting us. He doesn't stop calling us. He wanted Abram to be near. He loved him. And so God in his grace protects and corrects Abraham. He protects him in that he doesn't allow Sarah to be taken in as a wife of Pharaoh. And he protected Abraham's life, which was his greatest fear, that they would kill him if they knew that he was married to Sarah. But he also corrects Abraham by letting his scheme crash and burn. And that is the grace of God. Let me tell you something, when God allows your plans to fall flat, that is his grace Because Abraham was making plans that God had not signed off on. God's gracious like that. Just look at the parable of the prodigal son who who took everything that his father had given him and he squandered it away. But in God's grace, he allowed that young man to still be alive and have the ability to turn and go back to the father's house. I'm telling you, sometimes God allows us to come to that rock bottom place. Sometimes he allows us to come to that spot where we come to the end of ourselves and we can no longer uh, delusion believe that we are managing our own lives, and we come to this realization that we need to turn back. And that's what God allows in the life of Abraham. It's the grace of God. The only reason any of us can draw near to God or to draw near again to God is because of God's grace. God made it difficult for Abraham to live in that distant place, but God did not force Abraham to return. While grace is the reason why he can even return, God did not force Abraham to return. God did not take Abraham and turn him and push him in the direction he wanted him to go. Abraham still had some choices to make. He had to choose to go back to Canaan. He had to choose to draw near to God. He had to choose to admit his failure and his wrongness and walk away from it. Remember, There were other things that he could have done. There were other places that he could have went. But Abraham came back to God's way of life. And so I want us to just take a few minutes this morning and chart the things that Abraham did and did not do that helped him draw near to God. Wouldn't that be helpful? If we find ourselves in a place like Abraham where we've gotten away from God and we want to get back How do we make our way? How do we chart the course? Well, there's some things that we should do. There's some things that we should not do. Number one, Abraham did not let his failure define him. Abraham did not let his failure define him. Think about it. Up to that point, Abraham's life is defined by success and faithfulness and obedience. God calls, Abraham responds, God makes a promise, Abraham has faith, God leads him, Abraham follows on, Abraham builds an altar, God appears to him. I mean, it is building, 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 and Abraham is finding his identity and being Abraham, the Hebrew, the called of God. But then all of a sudden he makes this bad choice and he hits bottom. He has a major failure. I'm telling you, failure can change the trajectory of a person's life. <laughs> I was reading a book the other day. I don't know why it was recommended. But uh, it was a, a book by Jordan Peterson. And he's talking about personality and ordering our lives out of chaos, and he uses the example of lobsters. And he was talking about how that lobsters are territorial, and when they come upon each other, they will fight each other. And there's this whole graduated conflict level that goes on before they actually break out the pinchers and start going after each other. And what he was pointing out was that when that happens, the lobster, no matter if he's the the big bad dude with the biggest territory, if he loses, it changes his entire activity and personality, if I can frame it that way, so that he is no longer going out like an alpha male lobster, but now he is running away, he is scared, he is hiding, he's not getting into conflicts and doing all of these things. And Peterson uses that to to remind us that sometimes human beings act that way. And when we're doing good and we're the winners and we're succeeding, we have this confidence and we're moving forward. But if we have a failure, sometimes people allow that failure to define them and they live under the shadow of that failure for the rest of their lives Thank God, Abraham did not do that. Did he fail? Yes, but he didn't let his failure define him. Just because he failed, he did not, it did not mean that he was a failure. You know, I've heard people use language like that. Well, I'm just a loser. I'm just a failure. I mess everything up. No, you don't. You messed up. You don't mess everything up. You failed. You're not a failure. Don't let it define you. That's a lie of the devil. He wants to deceive you. He wants to attack you. He wants to squash you down. He wants to keep you away from God. What I love about Abraham is that he got up from his failure and he restarted his journey of faith. Yes, I failed, but I know how to go back. I know what direction to go. I have a spiritual compass that is pointing me this way, and I'm going to get back. It might take me a while. It might be a waste. I may not get right back on the path where I left it, but I'm heading that direction. Failure does not have to be final when God is involved. And so if you're a Christian who has failed at some point in your life, don't let that define you. Don't let that be fatal. Don't let that be final because God is involved. Don't adopt it as your new identity. Oh, I'm just the one that fails. I can't do it. I can't live for that. I've tried living for the Lord, but every time I try to get close, man, the devil attacks me and I have this weakness and I've got this temptation and I've got this and that. Stop. That's not who you are in Christ. Abram didn't live his life in his failure. Watch. He lived his life in God's forgiveness. And you're going to have to make a choice because you're going to fail. Some way, somehow, some level, some degree, you're going to fail in your journey with Christ. Are you going to choose to live in your failure or are you going to live in the forgiveness of God? And realize that God saved you when you were a failure. God chose you when you were a failure. God is the one who sent his son to die for you because you failed and you couldn't save yourself. And you lived in sin. And God knew what he was getting when he purchased you. And God has forgiven you of your failures. The ones that failed that happened before salvation and the ones that happened after salvation. Abraham did not let his failure define him. Number two, Abraham did not substitute God's prosperity for God's presence. It says in our text in chapter 13 and verse 2 that Abram was very rich in cattle and in silver and in gold. You see, God's been blessing Abraham for a while. In fact, God's blessings were on Abraham before Abraham gets called in chapter 12. He already has amassed quite an operation. When he goes down to Egypt, even though he has gotten off God's track, do you remember Pharaoh bestows upon him goods for Sarah that he never took back, so he's increased his wealth and his riches, so that when Abraham does come back into Canaan land, he's got more money, more cattle, more silver, more gold than he's ever had in his life. And even though God had blessed Abraham with great abundance Abraham knew that it wasn't as valuable as nearness you see Abraham could have sat back and lived the easy life and could have said hey you know what I've got plenty of money to live on I've got the goods God's blessed me that must mean that God's okay with what I'm doing so I'm just going to substitute prosperity for presence can I say this pointedly sadly we are so selfish that many people only want God for His blessings. And that if we simply had the blessings from God, we'd be fine without the God who blessed us. I'm telling you, we're living in a day and time when there is a prosperity gospel that is being preached And what is being elevated is not the sanctifying, substitutional atonement of Jesus Christ for our sins, but it is that you can be blessed beyond your imagination and that God will give you health and wealth and a good life. And that becomes the object of worship. And that becomes the desire of the heart. And there are people who are pursuing the prosperity of God and not pursuing the presence of God. In fact, there is a biblical example of that in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Jesus Christ addresses seven churches. Five out of the seven churches are told to repent of something. The last church is the church of Laodicea. It's the most infamous church in that list. And do you remember what their problem was? They were blessed. You say, how is that a problem? Because they had substituted the blessings of God, the prosperity of God for the presence of God. It is to the church at Laodicea that Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if any man will hear my voice and let me in, I will come, and I will sup with him, and I will be near to him, and I will be a friend to him. But the church at Laodicea is blind because they say, We've got everything we need. We're lifted up. We've got riches. We've got wealth. We've got health. We've got everything that we need. But they didn't have the presence of God in their church. Many theologians believe that that is an indication of a church age, that those seven churches, while literal local churches, also represent seven ages or periods in church history. And the seventh age, the last age or period, is the age of Laodicea, which many theologians believe that's the age that we're in right now that you can look around this country and this world and you can see a lot of big church buildings that are operating with big budgets and have a big program and seem to be attracting big crowds. But sadly, from God's view, he's not welcome there. He's on the outside. And so Abraham does not substitute prosperity for presence. He realized that the blessings were worthless without the blesser. It reminds me of Moses uh, later on in the book of Exodus when uh, God has gotten frustrated with the people of Israel and their rebellion. And he says, I'll tell you what, Moses, I'll send you up. I'll run the people out of the land. I will establish you. I will bless you. I'll give you everything that you want, but I'm not going with you. And unlike the Laodiceans, Moses falls on his face and he says, God, if you don't go, I won't go. I, I-, I don't want to step out without your presence. And the same is true for Abraham. He understood that prosperity was no substitute for the presence of God. Number three, Abraham did not trade one distant place for another. Abraham did not trade one distant place for another. Notice the geographical terms that are used in verse number three. And he went on his journeys from the south, even to Bethel, unto the place where his tent had been, At the beginning between Bethel and Hai, Abraham went back to Canaan land, but he didn't have to. Do you understand that? There were more roads out of Egypt than just the one that led back to Bethel. He could have left Egypt and went back to Haran. He could have left Egypt and went back to Mesopotamia where he was from. No doubt there would have been some feeling of familiarity and security. There would have been some comfortableness of going back to the place where he was from and revisiting and reconnecting with people in that old way of life. And probably some people would have welcomed him back. There were probably people in Mesopotamia and Haran who would have been, Hey, good to see you, Abraham. We were wondering when you're coming back. Man, we still got your stuff. We'll strike up the deal that we had. I'm so glad that you're here. Let's have a party. But it was not where God had called him. It was where, not where God had called him to be. So, so it would not bring him closer to God. It wasn't simply getting out of Egypt. It was getting back to the place where God had called him. The place that he was at at the beginning, the Bible says. Number four, here's what Abraham did. Abraham did go back to the place he left God. He went back to the place where he left God. Verse 3 says that he went back to Bethel. He went back to the place where he was at at the beginning. He went back to the place where the altar was. He didn't move on. He had to go back. You know, sometimes when we fail and we're embarrassed about our failure and we want to forget about our failure and we want to act like our failure never happened and and instead of turning back, we want to turn to the side and we just want to get out of there and forget or act like it never happened. But that's not how we get back to a place of closeness to God. We have to go back to where we left God. Understand, this is what the Bible calls repentance. It is that we acknowledge to God that we were wrong. We find ourselves in this place of distance and our plans have fallen apart. And instead of saying, you know what, I'm going to pick myself up and I'm going to go on and do my own thing, we fall down on our knees and we say, God, I was wrong. You were right. I've drifted from you. I am sorry. I, I want to get back to the place where I left you. Abraham knew exactly where he left God. And might I say, so does every backslider. Every person who's ever backslidden got away from the Lord. We know where we left. We know where we were at. We know what God was doing in our life. We know what He was working on. We know what door He was pressing on. We know what corner He was rubbing off in our life when we decided to get away. And that's where we need to go back to. We need to go back to that place that we ran from. But there's good news Going back to face God is not nearly as painful, shameful, or dreadful as we imagine it to be. Again, that's another lie of the devil. That's another strategy of the flesh that when we have come to that place of realizing that we failed, we think, I could never go back and face God. I mean, God was so good to me. He never did anything wrong to me, and I did this, and it will be so painful to go back. It will be so shameful to go back. I can't bring myself to do that. Let me tell you something. It's not like that with God. It's like the prodigal son with God. It is when the son does come back, the father has been looking for him every single day on the horizon, scanning the view. And when he sees him, even though he's covered in mud and slop and stench and the filth of the world, the father runs to greet him. And he's not repulsed by the stain and the stink that he carries with him, but instead he wraps his arms around him. He draws him in. He covers him with the robe. He gives him The the ring, he throws a grand party for him. Why? Because God is looking for you and I, the place where we left. Number five, Abraham did not go back, or Abraham did go back to the house of God. That word Beth El literally means house of God. House of God. El means Elohim, Beth means house, house of Elohim, house of God. Now, granted, the theology of the house of God would not be fully developed in Scripture uh, for another 2,000 years, but we catch a glimpse of it here in Genesis. What God would fully unfold in the New Testament about the house of God and the role that it plays in our life... We catch a glimpse of it here in the life of Abraham. The house of God is synonymous with the household of God or the family of God. It is not about a cathedral. It is not about a a, a a place as much as it is about a people, about a family of God. Think about it. Paul said to Timothy, the house of God is the church of the living God. The church is not this building. The church are the people in this building. The house of God is is really the surest place to draw near to God. It's the surest place to draw near to God. Abraham may have been at a loss for many things, but he knew that was the place where he was near to God, and he goes back to that place. Later, Jacob would have a similar encounter when he's on the lamb from his brother, and he happens to spend the night in a place called Bethel, and he finds out God lives there. And he dreams a dream where God set up a ladder from heaven down to earth and there are angels ascending and descending upon that ladder. And and, and Jacob goes on in his run and he spends 20 years away. But you know when he comes back, you know where he comes to? He comes back to Bethel, the house of God. And that night, he doesn't just have a dream. He finds out God was there, and he wrestles with God that night, and it changes his life, and he never walks the same after that. And he says, hey, you know what? We're not going to call it Bethel anymore. We're going to add to it. We're going to call it El Bethel. Why? Because it's the God of the house of God. It's not just the place. It's the person of God. It's not just the building. It's the body of Christ. Think of it like a portal that brings you into the presence of God. If you want to get near to God, I am telling you that you need to come to the house of God. This is God's outpost on earth. This is the place where God's people gather together. This is where the family of God gets together. Six, and finally, Abraham did go back to the altar of God. So Abraham goes back to the place where he left God. He goes back to the house of God. He goes back to the altar of God. Look at it in our text, verse 4. Unto the place of the altar. Unto the place of the altar which he had made there at the first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. The altar is the place where you get closest to God. The altar is not just the steps at the front of the church building. The altar is the place where you lay it all down to God. Right? Remember, we said the altar is God's real estate on earth. It's the place where we bring our sacrifice and we say, This is yours, God. I'm giving this to you. I'm not taking it back off the altar. I'm laying it down on the altar for you. Every Christian should have a personal altar of prayer. Every Christian should have a personal altar of prayer. Not a shrine, but a daily time when you shut the world out and you get alone with God. God. What a precious commodity that is in this world today because there's always a phone that is buzzing. There is always something that is to distract us. There is always something else to do. But you and I need to understand that altar time is important time and we need a time in our lives when we shut the whole world off and we leave that phone in another room or we turn it off and we get alone with God. Abraham went back to the altar Going to the altar is a place when you present yourself as a living sacrifice to God. The, the Old Testament was a place of dying sacrifices. You executed the sacrifice. That's how it stayed on the altar. In the New Testament, Romans says that we are to present our bodies a living sacrifice unto God. You know what's so tough about a living sacrifice? It crawls off the altar. And you know it's true. How many times have you laid yourself down to the Lord? It's all yours, Lord. I'm giving it all to you. You can have control of my life. I know I've done it again. I'm giving it all to you. And we get up and we walk away from that place. We do good for a little while. But then pretty soon, the old default mode sets in and we want to take control of our lives again. And that's why I'm telling you, it's got to be a daily time with God. It doesn't have to be a special shrine. It doesn't have to be a special place. It, it doesn't have to be a set of steps that you kneel down. But it, it doesn't need to be a, a time when you get alone with God and you shut everything else out. Because I can tell you this, you will never draw near to God without coming to this place of personal and total sacrifice. If you never come to the place where you say it's all yours, God, you know what Abraham was saying. Now, we're never told that the famine stopped. Now, I assume that it did, but we're not told that it did. You know what Abraham's doing? He's saying, God, I'll go back and live in a land of famine if that's where you want me to live. I will leave that up to you. If it costs me my cattle, if it costs me all my gold, if it costs me everything that I have to live in that place that you've called me to, I'm willing to sacrifice it. I am I, not going to run away from you just so that I can live a better life. And until you and I come to that place of total and personal sacrifice to God, we're not going to draw as near to Him as we want to be. And so let me ask you this morning, have you been migrating toward Egypt? Do you feel the distance between you and God? Really, the most important question is, are you ready to come back to God? Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me? Should you bow your head and close your eyes, uh, stand to your feet this morning, I just want to ask you privately while nobody else is looking around. I want to ask who would be honest this morning and, and say, I need to draw near to God. Right? I, I'm not talking about the details. I'm not talking about how far you have went or not went. I'm asking, do you feel that you need to draw near to God today? If that's you, then will don't you just leave your seat at this moment and come to this altar as we stand and get ready for prayer. If your heart's desire is to draw near to God today, will not you come? You see, because we take the first step. As James said, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Abraham had to get up and leave the land of Egypt and head back to the land of Canaan. How about you, friend? Does your heart long to be near to God? And won't you take that step this morning? Dear Lord, I thank you so much that you are a God of second chances, a God who allows us to return when we've drifted away. Lord, I'm so thankful that our failures do not bar us from future nearness, but that we can draw closer to you even after our failures than ever before. Father, I pray that you would draw us near today and that we would be willing to lay it all on the altar, that we'd forget about all of our ambition and aspirations and our comfort of life, but that we would come to this altar and that we'd lay it down and we'd say, Lord, I want you I want you above everything else. If it costs me everything, I want you. Oh, God, make us into these Abraham-type people, I pray in Jesus' name. If you would sing.